and the text that we're going to look at, I'm going to read that for you, is um, about the transfiguration of Jesus. And so let's look at that text in the 17th chapter of Matthew. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning. Good to be with you guys once again after a few weeks of break. Uh... A couple years ago, I was riding around the neighborhood with my son, Hudson, who uh, was about eight years old at the time, and as we were riding around Parkview over here, we passed in front of Jim and Andrea Johnson's house, uh, which led to us talking a little bit about Jim and Andrea, and I'm not exactly sure how the conversation got there, but at some point it led to me telling Hudson that uh, Jim and Andrea are from Canada. And uh, this revelation blew Hudson's mind, and he could not believe. He looked at me, and he's just like, Mr. Jim's Canadian? And I was like, yeah, he's, he's from Canada. And, and, uh, and we're riding there, and Jim, uh, Hudson gets this kind of weird look, and he's just deep in thought for a second as he's riding. And all of a sudden, he says, you know, now that I think about it, his skin does look Canadian. <laughs> and, I, and I laughed about that for days. And I thought about that, what was going on there. For, for so, some reason, there is something about Jim that has never quite sat right with Hudson, and he's never been able to quite put his finger on it. But finally, there was this moment of revelation where he realized what it was. He's Canadian. That's why his skin looks so different from all of ours, is because he's from Canada. Have you, have you ever had a moment... Where, where you think you know somebody, or maybe you really do know somebody, but then you have some sort of experience that shifts your perspective on that person or deepens your understanding of them as you uh, learn something new, as you see something new in them. I still remember the first time my wife Amy told me that she actually likes circus peanuts. You know, those little, like, orange styrofoam marshmallow things that they try to pass off as candy? My wife actually likes those things. And I remember her telling me that and me being like, I don't even know you. Like, who are you? Who did I marry? I, I still remember the time that I learned. Actually, Drew Henderson, there's a number of different revelations that you'll learn as you get to know him 
more and more. I still remember the first time I learned that Drew Henderson was a diehard 90s alternative music fan, and I was like, that makes sense. That's why I love you so much. That's why I get you so much. And and I also remember the first time that I realized Drew Henderson was a diehard NASCAR fan. And I was like, that's why I don't fully get you. Um, and, and also, I remember the first time I realized Drew Henderson was into uh, BMX flat landing. Um, and, and so there's all these different revelations with Drew that you'll come to as you get to know him more and more. But have you ever had one of those kinds of moments where you learn something new about someone and and a deeper understanding of them takes place, where maybe a completely different shift in perspective takes place in your mind. The story that we just read was one of those moments for Peter, James, and John. They have been with Jesus at this point for about two and a half years, and they know him, but they don't fully know him. Like, they get a lot of things about Jesus, and they know he's the Messiah, but, but there's still a lot they don't understand. And even after this moment, there's going to be a lot they don't understand. But, but when they go up onto the mountain, the, the curtain is pulled back, so to speak, and they get this glimpse that gives them a deeper view of Jesus that they did not have before. And it changes them. And, and this is my hope for us this morning, that as we read through this story of the transfiguration, as we explore this, that the same thing will happen in us, that you and I will walk away with a deeper understanding of Jesus. And not just that, actually. My hope is that in the story of the transfiguration, we will come away with a deeper understanding of ourselves, a deeper understanding of our own lives, our present and our future. But first, I need to confess to you that actually uh, I have not really known what to do with the transfiguration for lots of my life. Uh, It it has always been a story that has seemed just a bit bizarre to me and a bit random. And And I didn't really have a category to put it in. Jesus and his disciples are going around doing their everyday ministry thing, and he's teaching, and he's healing, and he's talking to them. And then all of a sudden, Jesus calls a timeout, and he goes up the mountain with three of his buddies, and they're sitting there on the mountain, and Jesus starts to just glow in front of them. And then two dead guys show up, and then a cloud comes down, and then all of a sudden a voice speaks out of the cloud, and the disciples are terrified, and they hunch over, and then like that, in an instant, it's all over. They start walking down the mountain. Jesus goes, hey, don't tell anybody about this, okay? And then they get down to the bottom and act like nothing happened. And I never knew, like, what's the point of all that? Like, What's going on in this moment? Why does all this crazy stuff happen just kind of randomly in the middle of the gospel? I knew that there was some some degree of kind of the revealing of Christ's divine nature and his identity. But it doesn't make sense if that's what's happening, that he would go to such great lengths to to make sure nobody knows about it. He doesn't even take all 12 disciples, just three up there, and tells them to keep quiet until after his resurrection. What's happening in this story? There's a motto that uh, I heard often at Ozark Christian College where I was learning to study the Bible. It's one that gets repeated a lot when it comes to interpreting Scripture. You've probably heard staff members here at Sunnybrook repeat this refrain here, and that is, context is king. That if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand a particular verse or a particular passage or a particular story, you've got to be able to read it in its context. You've got to be able to see what's going on in the context to put the big picture together. And so this is what I want to do today with this story. 
I want to put the transfiguration in its context, but actually I want to kind of step back and look at it in its larger context, specifically that of the Old Testament, and then we're going to move in and look at it in its immediate context, and then we're going to kind of back up again and look at it in another broad context. So first, the Old Testament context. Understanding how this fits with the Old Testament is important because Matthew's readers would have. Matthew's readers, we know, was primarily a Jewish audience, people who knew their scriptures. And so when they read this story, they would have made some immediate connections out of these seemingly random details in the text. The first clue for them would have been when Matthew starts in verse 1 and says that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Because when uh, someone goes up a mountain in the Old Testament, that's usually a sign that something big is about to happen. Oftentimes, an encounter with God is going to take place on a mountain. And so they would have their ears perked up a little bit as they read these words. And, uh, but then when you add to this the fact that Jesus goes up and that he has a glowing or shining appearance, and then you see the presence of God descending in a cloud, and then you see a voice speaking from there, from the cloud, then all of Matthew's readers, their minds, probably all of them would have gone to one place. Exodus 24. Exodus 24 is the place where Moses leads this newly redeemed people of God out of Egypt into the wilderness, and he takes them to a mountain called Sinai, where he's going to confirm the covenant between God and them as God gives the law, and they agree to live it out. But when Moses goes to Mount Sinai, you see a number of things actually take place in that narrative and see if these sound familiar. First of all, Moses goes up a mountain. Second, when he does that, God appears on that mountain veiled in a cloud. Third, a voice speaks from the cloud. And then lastly, ten chapters later when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is shining with this new appearance so bright that he has to cover it up with a sheet. And when the readers of Matthew's gospel would have first come across this story of Jesus, they would have seen that these things in the transfiguration aren't random that they're pointing to something. They're pointing out that something monumental is going on with this Jesus of Nazareth. He is no mere man. He is no mere teacher. Because Moses was probably the greatest figure in all of Jewish history. Abraham, he's, he's kind of the granddaddy. He's the ancestor of them all. But to them, Moses is the founder of their faith. Moses is the one that God used to give the law to his people, to give them the scriptures, and to create this covenant relationship between himself and them. So Moses is huge, and he had a relationship with God like no one else. This is what Deuteronomy 34 says about Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. No one, Deuteronomy says, is like Moses. And then you go to Matthew and you see this young rabbi who's just like Moses in a lot of ways who's doing the same kinds of things that Moses is doing, and that's interesting. But it's, Moses is not the only person in the Old Testament to have an encounter with God up on the mountain. There is one other, Elijah. 
Elijah is in 1 Kings 19. He's been doing all this ministry, trying to bring God's people back to him, and he's facing persecution for it. He's on the run from Queen Jezebel, who's trying to kill him, and he runs, of all places, to Mount Sinai. And when he goes up on Mount Sinai, there's these series of kind of crazy, bizarre experiences with fire and earthquake and wind, and then all of a sudden, he meets God, and God speaks to him in a still, small voice up on the mountain. Now, Elijah is not as important as Moses in Jewish history and the scriptures, but he was considered one of the greatest prophets of the Jewish people. And the people at this time had a particular fascination with Elijah because their prophets had declared that one day Elijah was going to come again to Israel. He was going to come right before the coming of the Messianic kingdom. He was going to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And so they always were kind of on the lookout for him. As a matter of fact, the very last verses of their scriptures ended telling them to be looking for Elijah. That's how the Old Testament closes out in its final three verses. Actually, both of these two men, Moses and Elijah, get mentioned there. Look at Malachi 4, uh, verses 4 through 6. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb, that's Sinai, for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so the Old Testament ends with this. Remember Moses and all that he taught you. And look forward to Elijah, the day that he will come, preparing the way for the Lord. And then everything goes silent for 400 years. And then there's this young rabbi that comes onto the scene and begins teaching. And when he goes up on a mountain, guess what two figures appear next to him? And the disciples, when they see this, their mind is blown. They don't know what to do with this, but Peter yells out in verse 4, Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is incredible, God. Let's stay here. Let's, let's be here, Jesus. But, but just in case Peter and the crew, and just in case the readers of Matthew, like us, get confused into thinking that what you have is just this meeting of three really great men in Jewish history, Three really important figures in salvation history, all equal in significance and honor. No, no, no. God shows up in this moment and singles out one of them, singles out Jesus. Verse 5 says, while Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, when the greatest figures in all of history come together, when the greatest men in salvation history come together, Jesus still stands alone, stands at the center. He is the point of this all. In fact, many have pointed out that what appears to be happening with Moses and Elijah up there is you have a representation of all the Old Testament. Moses representing the law because he was the giver of the law. Elijah representing the prophets because he's one of the greatest of the prophets. And so you have in here this kind of picture that all the law and the prophets support point to Jesus. 
And that's what we see when we read the transfiguration in the context of the Old Testament. We see the glory of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, the one who stands at the center of Scripture and at the center of the Father's plan and at the center of the Father's delight. So question, if this is meant to show Christ's glory and lift that up to us, why is it that Jesus is so secretive about it? Why does he tell them not to tell anybody about this until after his resurrection? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at this story in its immediate context. And so now we zoom in on the Gospel of Matthew, particularly chapters 16 and 17, and those stories that surround the transfiguration. In the text that comes directly before our story today, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he asks them in Matthew 16 if they know who he is. Peter steps up and Peter says that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus congratulates him for that, says that's that's not from man that you got that information. God revealed that to you. And now Jesus says, now that you know who I am, I'm going to begin to explain to you more fully what I'm about, what I'm here to do. And this is what he says in Matthew 16, verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and be raised on the third day. So this is what Jesus says directly before his transfiguration. Now I want you to fast forward and we're going to go to the story on the other side of the transfiguration. What happens after the transfiguration is Jesus comes down the mountain with his uh, three disciples and they encounter this boy and his father and the boy is possessed by a demon. So Jesus casts that demon out and then he gathers up all the disciples as they're about to move into their next phase of ministry. He gathers them in Galilee and here is what Jesus says in Matthew 17 verses 22 through 23. As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. So you see what Matthew is doing here, what Jesus is doing here. He is framing up the story of the transfiguration with declarations of Christ's suffering on either side of it on both sides of those things. And that's interesting because there was so much confusion surrounding the Messiah at this time. The Messiah in their eyes was supposed to be a figure of power and glory. And and they were right about that, but they were wrong about this. They believed they could not fathom a suffering Messiah dying in weakness at the hands of his enemies, at the hands of his own people. And this is why Jesus has to tell Peter and James and John, don't tell anybody about this until after my resurrection. Because if word begins to spread about what happened up on that mountain, it would only affirm to all of Jesus' followers and his disciples, it would affirm all their misguided beliefs that this Messiah is a Messiah who is all about glory, not suffering. But the point of Matthew putting a transfiguration right here, the point of Jesus talking about his suffering on either side is to show this truth that Christ's glory and his suffering are not incompatible. But those two things actually go together. 
that he is glorious in his suffering. No, he is even glorious because of his suffering. And so when we read the transfiguration in this context, what we see is the Son of God who in the midst of weakness, on the brink of his humiliation, shines with the glory of God, not in spite of that weakness and suffering, but because of that weakness and suffering. We could easily spend the rest of our time just focusing on that. That would be well worth our time today. But there's more. I want to invite you to look at this story in one more context, and that is the context of the New Testament. And when we read the transfiguration in the New Testament, in the context of the New Testament, what we see is that the themes in this story don't just play out in the life of Jesus. These same themes will actually play out in the lives of his followers. The first one probably won't surprise you. That is this theme of suffering, that just as Jesus faced suffering and hardship and self-denial and sacrifice, so will his people. Jesus says this uh, in the previous story, in Matthew 16, as soon as he's done talking about how he will go to Jerusalem and he will suffer and die, this is what he says in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And again, that's probably not surprising to you. If you've been a Christian for very long at all, you, you know this idea, this truth, because it is talked about in the New Testament over and over again. Jesus repeats this theme time and time again. Paul repeats this theme time and time again. James repeats this theme. Peter repeats this theme over and over again. We see this truth come out, so it's not surprising to hear that. What might be surprising to you, though, is that the other side of this story is promised to you as well. I want you to take note of something in verse 2. In verse 2, we are told that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Something changed in him, and he began to shine like the sun. Here's what's kind of fascinating. Just four chapters before this, Jesus will use that same phrase, that same exact Greek word for shine, actually, to describe what will happen to his faithful followers in the new heavens and the new earth. Matthew 13, uh, 43 says that when Jesus returns, Jesus says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. What happened to Jesus on that mountain will happen to his followers in the coming kingdom. That's not the only word in this story that the New Testament applies to believers. Actually, the main word in this story, transfigured. The word in the Greek is metamorpho. And Paul will use that exact same word to describe something that happens to us, not just in the future, but even now. He says it is happening to us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus, are being transformed, are being metamorpho into the same image as Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, or as one translation says, with ever-increasing glory. This is happening in us. As we understand the gospel, as we come to faith in Jesus, as we fix our eyes on him, the Spirit is doing something in us that is building up that same kind of image, that same kind of glory in us. Can I tell you something that might sound crazy? even borderline blasphemous. 
in eternity, Jesus will be glorified as he deserves. But so will you. You will share in the glory of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we will be at the same level of Jesus. Of course, he always stands at the top. He always stands at the center. But the New Testament is pretty clear about this truth, that he shares his glory with us. Says this over and over again, that we will be glorified with him, like in Philippians 3.21, where Paul says that our bodies will be like him. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Or Romans 8.17, which says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or Colossians 3.4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or 2 Corinthians 4.7, where Paul talks about all the suffering that he faces and all the hardship he faces, and yet he says about it that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And there are so many other verses. I had to drop a lot of them because we don't have enough time. Over and over again, the New Testament confirms this truth. We will be glorified with Jesus Christ. That's hard to believe, isn't it? If we're honest. For a number of different reasons, probably. One, because it just sounds wrong to say Two, because it's hard to get our minds around what that even means. But I think one of the biggest reasons that that can be hard to believe for me is because this idea seems so far removed from the reality that I experience in my own life, that we often experience in our lives. I don't know about you, but glorious is not exactly the word that I would often choose to associate with myself. Words like uh, struggle and weakness and frustration often seem to fit a whole lot better. I confess to you, I have been following Jesus for 30 years now. Um, Gave my life to him when I was seven years old. And three decades later, I still find on a lot of days, particularly recently, It takes an exhausting amount of energy to say yes to God and no to my sin. It's a lot harder than it seems like it should be for me at this point. That I stumble my way through it a lot of days, and there's some days I go to bed and I lay down feeling like I did well, and there are other days I lay down feeling like I didn't do well. But, but there are also days, like I said, particularly recently, where I go to bed and feel like I did well, and I'm not even all that satisfied with it. It was hard, and I didn't even enjoy doing the right thing. And, and, and sometimes in those moments, it's easy for me to wonder if it's worth it. Maybe you feel like that sometimes. Or maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's not the struggle with sin. Maybe, maybe you've gone through a particularly difficult season, one of hardship, whether that's been because of physical illness or loneliness in the middle of a pandemic or, or wrestling with mental illness as, as 
Things like anxiety and depression seem to overwhelm you and you are trying to stay faithful and you are trying your best to not turn inward and just focus on yourself the whole time. But you feel like you're running out of steam and it feels like this is getting too hard and you're not sure if you can do it. Maybe recently, maybe over the holidays, you worked up the courage to finally have a conversation with some family members about Jesus or maybe friends to talk a little bit about your faith and you've been praying for it and you pictured it going so well, but instead all you got was like eye rolls or dismissal or someone asked you a question that you did not have an answer for and you didn't feel glorious in that moment. You felt like an idiot. You felt embarrassed and you felt dumb. Or maybe you're just going through the day-to-day, mundane, unglamorous life of trying to raise kids up well. You're trying to teach them to love Jesus, and you're trying to disciple them. And there's some days when that seems to be working, and there's some days when it doesn't seem like anything is sinking in, and you feel kind of like a failure as a parent, and you're trying, but you, you look at this and wonder why it seems to be so hard, why it seems to be so boring. And in times like this, it can be hard to feel like self-denial and sacrifice and obedience are worth it. But what the transfiguration shows to us, what the New Testament confirms to us, is that words like hardship and weakness and struggle, these words are not incompatible with words like glory. That in the kingdom of God, those two things go hand in hand. That this kind of living, faithfulness in the middle of hardship, in the middle of struggle, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what exactly that means, we're not entirely sure. 1 John 3, 2 says this, that when he, what we will be has yet to be revealed, but we know we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. We don't fully get it. We know we'll be like Jesus a little bit. We'll have a body like his. We'll have character like his. We'll have a heart like his, but we don't know exactly all that this will look like, what it means to be glorified. I believe, though, that we do get to hint about this in the transfiguration. The key moment of Jesus' glory in this story is not, I don't think, when Jesus begins to glow up on the mountain. It's not when Moses and Elijah appear. The key moment comes in verse 5 when God shows up and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is glory when the God of all creation comes and says, this one I'm pleased with, this one I love, this is who I'm for. Have you ever seen a child when their parent looks at them and maybe gets down on their knees in front of them and looks that child in the face eye to eye and tells them, I am so proud of you. So proud of what you did. I'm so proud of you for doing the right thing. Have you ever seen the way a child's face lights up in that moment? The way their countenance kind of grows and the, the way their kind of shoulders uh, stick back and they get proud and they're so excited. And have you ever witnessed that? That feeling they get when they know that they have, they have pleased the one that they wanted to please. When they have pleased the one that they, whose approval they wanted. Maybe you remember that feeling when you were a kid of making your parents proud. Or maybe you don't. 
Maybe you chased that feeling all your life, and that's all you ever wanted was to hear your mom or your dad say that they were proud of you, and you never got that. And maybe you're still chasing that today. That's because that's something that's hardwired into us to please our parents who are in authority over us and who love us. It's a sign of something greater, that it is hardwired into us to please our true father, that we were made for that. So take that little picture of a child being told that his parents are proud of him and multiply that times a billion when one day, on the other side of eternity, your true father, who also happened to be the one who breathes out planets and galaxies and atoms and mountains and everything in between, when that father looks you in the eye and says, I am pleased with you. That your sacrifices were not in vain, that your hard work was worth it, that your faithfulness through trials has made me proud. I delight in you and in the kind of person that I have made you into. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is glory. That is glorious. And knowing that that is coming, that one day we will live in the delight of the one we were made to please, this is where we, brothers and sisters, find the strength and the motivation to live like Jesus. To die to ourselves like Jesus, because we know that in doing so, one day we will be glorified like Jesus. I like the way one writer talks about the transfiguration and what it means for us. He says this, Michael Kybe says, when we see Jesus' face burst with light on the mountain, we are invited not only to recognize how utterly different from us he is as the divine son of God, but also how like him we may be if we follow him down the mountain to the cross. But again, of course, the reason that any of this is possible at all is because Jesus did go down that mountain to the cross. The reason you and I even have a shot at things like glory, at getting to sit in the presence of God and know that he is pleased with us, is because the one that he is most pleased with came and lived a life and died for us. Philippians 2 says this, that Jesus came and humbled himself, became an obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says this, for this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Christ, or Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is what we remember in communion, the grace that comes to us from a Savior who died for us. The way that that grace not only takes my sin, but gives me his Holy Spirit to change me and shape me from one degree of glory into another because of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let's take this bread and eat together. Let's take the cup representing Christ's blood spilled for us and drink together. And now let's worship the glorious Savior who suffered so that we might live. <laughs>